Uh, it's great to be here. Well, this morning we're continuing our series called The Cost, where we take a fresh look at all the really difficult things that Jesus said, which was actually uh, quite a lot, and asking ourselves, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like? How do we move from being a believer to a follower? And in some ways, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's pretty easy to follow um, today. You just need to pick up your phone and um, we can follow someone we don't even know. And uh, we can do it from a comfortable distance. And um, every now and again, we might even let them know that we like them by sending them a little love heart to show uh, our appreciation. And um, if we feel like it, if we don't like what we see anymore with just one tap, we can just as easily unfollow. When it comes to being a Jesus follower, he wants more than our heart every now and again. He wants our whole heart, the whole of the time, for the whole of our lives. All of our heart for all of his. In Second Chronicles chapter 16, it says, The eyes of the Lord are scouring the earth, looking throughout the earth, to strengthen those whose hearts are completely his. Isn't that lovely? He's looking out. He's on the lookout for people who are 100% all in with their heart to him. Here's something I read recently that made me stop and think. It says this. In every generation, there are, it seems, a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. In every generation... There are a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. And then it asked a question. What would it be like if you were one of them? What would it be like if you were one of the few in your generation whose heart was completely his and you were prepared to take him seriously at his word? We know that every single word spoken by Jesus, every promise, every challenge, every encouragement, and every command was spoken from the very heart of God with the purpose of leading us into freedom and into truth and into life. The challenge for us is that some of those things that he said when it comes to following him into that freedom and life are really hard and even harder to do. And the truth is that they're costly. They cost an awful lot. And the temptation in front of all of us is to not take them seriously, or to water them down, or to just ignore them altogether. And to do any of those things would just be to completely miss what it means to truly follow Jesus. So the question I'm asking this morning is, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Surely it's more than just coming to church on a Sunday morning. Surely it's more than attending Connect Group. Surely it's more than even just believing that he exists or that he saved you. Being a follower is being able to call Jesus your leader. He leads every aspect of your life, not just your saviour, 
but your Lord. In other words, you literally hand him the keys and you put him in the driving seat of your life and you say, over to you, Jesus. Following Jesus is a lifelong pursuit of becoming more like him and by living the kind of life he lived. When Jesus said, follow me, the word means imitate. We are to be imitators of his life. And I don't know about you, but I want to follow Jesus in such a way that it changes me. And it changes how I live so that I can genuinely say that the life I live now in Christ looks completely different from the life that I lived before I followed him. And so this morning, with our whole hearts, we're going to get serious about some of Jesus' strongest words. Because don't we want to be counted as one of the few in our own generation who are prepared to take him seriously at his word and follow him no matter what? I know I do. So, um, just before we read, I'd love to pray and simply say, Holy Spirit, come. Open our minds, open our spiritual eyes, and would you make our hearts soft to receive your truth, Lord? And Spirit of God, would you breathe on my words um, with your love and your grace, and let them carry your love and your grace. And Lord, we just long to be a little bit more like Jesus when we leave here this morning than when we arrived. Amen. So we're going to read, but I would love to just set the scene before we read to help us just put it into um, the right context. Jesus has been traveling through villages and towns for quite some time now, speaking to really, really large crowds, teaching them about the kingdom of God, healing hundreds of people and doing miracles to prove his authority. And this is the time he decides now is the time to ask the disciples who they think he truly is. Peter, good old Peter, probably speaking on behalf of all of them, he says, you're him. We believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent to rescue his people. That's who you are. And this declaration from Peter is a really significant turning point in the story because from this moment on, Jesus' ministry becomes less public and more private. He's not doing as many miracles. There seems to have been a shift, and his focus is now on to the 12 closest friends that he has, and he begins to teach them and show them what it really means to follow him and to be a disciple in God's kingdom. And what he's doing is beginning to prepare them. He's beginning to prepare them for a life as a, as a Jesus follower. And so we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 16 and dip into a conversation that he's having with his disciples that may not really have ended the way that they thought it might end. So we'll start from Matthew chapter 16 from verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
That's got to hurt, doesn't it? Being called Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever, everyone say whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Amen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with a story that Lewis Carroll wrote called Alice Through the Looking Glass. Now, this is the same Alice that went to Wonderland, but this time she looked in a mirror and she realized she could see a whole different world that was reversed. Everything was um, opposite or reversed, including logic. So if you started running, you'd end up staying in exactly the same place. Walking away from something brought you closer towards it. And so in order to get somewhere, you actually had to set off in the opposite direction. Trying to do any kind of normal everyday activity was really difficult. It was very counterintuitive. If you've ever tried to cut your fringe, if you've got enough hair for that, um, Chuck. Um, (laughs) The boss is in the room and I can slag him off because I have the microphone. (laughs) Um, Where was I? Cutting your hair. If you've ever tried to cut your hair in a mirror or shave your beard or whatever, it's quite difficult, isn't it? It's very counterintuitive. And it's a bit like this for the disciples. I'm not talking about them cutting their hair. I'm talking about it must feel like they've just stepped into a world beyond the mirror where everything is reversed. See, Jesus has just confirmed that he is who they say he is, the chosen one sent to rescue them. But he's saying that he has to suffer, and that he has to die. And so do they. What kind of rescue is that? That makes absolutely no sense. If he is the king who is supposed to rescue them from the rule of the Roman oppressors, then what makes sense right now is to sit down and form a strategy. Get a battle plan together. The obvious solution would be march on Jerusalem, pick up some supporters along the way, choose your moment, say your prayers, fight a surprise battle, take over the temple and install Jesus as king. Surely that's how God's kingdom will come. But Jesus, of course, had a different way. He says, yes, we'll be going to Jerusalem. Yes, the kingdom of God is coming. Yes, I will be exalted as king. But the way it will happen, the way to this kingdom, is the exact opposite of what you have in mind. It will involve suffering and shame and opposition and death. And Peter and the disciples are absolutely and utterly confused. And I think they think Jesus is a little bit confused as well. Everything he's just told them is the exact opposite of what they imagined and what they hoped for. So Peter, who has just declared that Jesus is the Son of God, he dares to speak up and he says, no Jesus, 
that's not how it will be. That could never happen to you. And what does he do? Peter so quickly dismisses that hardship of any kind could be part of the plan. And what does Jesus say? He actually calls him Satan. Has anyone ever called you Satan? I'm sure that's really not a nice thing to happen. That's going to hurt. He says, get behind me, Satan. And if that sounds familiar, it's because once when Jesus was in the desert, he was hungry and thirsty. He'd been there 40 days. Satan came to tempt him away from God's plan and purpose for his life. And he offered Jesus the easy way out. He offered kingship without suffering. And Jesus' reply was, get away from me, Satan. It feels a bit like in that moment, Peter went from being the rock that Jesus said he would build his church on to the rock getting in the way of Jesus' mission. Get out of my way, Peter, Jesus said. In other words, get behind me. Follow me. Let me be in front. Let me lead. Don't try and lead me. I'm in the driver's seat, and this is the way we're going. And he says, and it gets harder, you have no idea how God works. His ways are not your ways. You don't understand it right now, but it will all become clear. You might think that it seems upside down or inside out or back to front, but actually God always does everything the right way around. And then I imagine him turning to the disciples and just pulling them in close and gathering them in and saying, look, here's the truth. Following me will cost you everything. If you want to be my disciple, this is how you do it. Number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. Number three, follow me. Are you still in? Jesus has just laid out before them and us how we move from believer to follower. Firstly, he says, deny yourself. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, sometimes it's helpful to just think, what does he not mean? And I think it's not about living with nothing or treating ourselves badly. It's not about punishing ourselves. It's not about, you know, in the office, enduring the misery as everyone else helps themselves to the lovely plate of chocolate biscuits whilst you endure it and say, no, 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 I can't possibly uh, um, eat those. There's a fancy Greek word, aparneomai, and it means to refuse to think about oneself. That's what he means. It's a putting others first way of living. It's a putting God first before anything else way of living. It's about humbly submitting our wills to God and following his example. To say, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. You think about Jesus in the garden as he was facing his death. And he cries out to God, take this away from me. It's too much to bear. And then just moments later, he says, not my will, but yours be done. The selflessness of Jesus in that moment is a demonstration of his deep, deep love for you and I, isn't it? 
And when he says to us, deny yourself, he's saying to us, put my love on display to everyone in your world. Put them first. Think about yourself last. That's what communicates love more than anything else. Um, went on holiday a few weeks ago, and uh, my husband Mark, I think some of you have met, he knows that I love to have a spotless house before I go on holiday. I have to make sure there's nothing in the laundry basket, nothing in the dishwasher, nothing anywhere. Everything has to be in its place. The house has to be spotless so that when you come back, the house is spotless and you don't have to worry. Anyone else? Yes? Anyone's uh, partner, you know that that's them as well. <laughs> it's a thing. And... Um, so Friday night, we were due to go on holiday the next day, Friday night. I'm like, I've got to clean the house. I've got to pack because I'm also the primary uh, packer of the cases. And you can imagine my delight when Mark begins to hoover. Now, all I know after a long, hard week at work that all Mark wants to do genuinely is sit in front of the TV with a glass of wine. I think some of you can probably relate to that. I know that's what he wanted to do. But actually, he spent the entire evening cleaning the house so that I could pack. It may seem small, but it was huge. He put me first. And it was a glorious demonstration of his deep love for me. And actually, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the night that he cleaned the house instead of sitting, watching the TV. You see, denying ourselves is about seeking what's best for others before we seek what, what's best for ourselves. All relationships, all relationships work best when two people deny themselves. Friendships, family relationships, marriages. If you want an amazing, off-the-charts marriage, deny yourself. God's plan for marriage is this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He gave up his life for the church. When two people in a relationship are always putting the other person first, denying themselves of their own wants and desires, it quickly becomes the most amazing, off-the-charts kind of marriage. Church works best when people deny themselves. When you have a bunch of people putting each other first, you'll have an amazing, off-the-charts church, yes? Yeah. Will we always get it right? Probably not. Thank goodness for the grace of God. I think God understands that over years we create habits, don't we, of the heart that are not easily broken. And thank goodness that he is patient with us as we learn what it really means to follow him. And so, Holy Spirit, help us to say no to our own wants and desires and surrender to the way you want us to live and demonstrate your great love. So that's number one, deny yourself. The second thing he said, you'll have to wait. The second thing he says was take up 
your cross. So what did Jesus mean when he said that? Again, let's look at what he probably didn't mean. He didn't mean the cross as some burden that God has given us that we must uh, carry, like a strained relationship or a physical illness. And then we say, well, that's just my cross. I have to bear. I don't think that's what he meant at all. You have to remember that to a person in the first century, to the disciples, the cross meant only one thing. Death. You have to remember at that time, Jesus hadn't died and risen again. When he talked about the cross, all they heard was a painful humiliating, torturous death. They would think it absolutely crazy that we wear a cross as a piece of jewelry. To them, that would be like our equivalent of wearing an electric chair around our neck. It's a form of execution. This is what they heard. The cross at that time definitely wasn't the symbol of hope and victory that we see it as today. He had not yet risen again when he told the disciples to take up their cross. They didn't know that it meant victory ahead. They didn't know that. All they heard was, follow me, and you're likely to die. And actually, if you know your history, most of the disciples did. They died as martyrs on the cross, just like Jesus. And it's really easy for us here in our Western culture, to think that it's the whole world's culture, isn't it? But there are places on this earth where taking up your cross does mean physical suffering and death for anyone who chooses to follow Jesus. <laughs> I think it's true to say that for us here, it's unlikely that, that any one of us would be faced with the prospect of physically dying for our faith. But taking up our cross still involves a death. Death to self. Death to our old nature. Death to our selfish desires. Death to what we want. Death to our own comfort. You know, the purpose of the cross was to kill someone. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, die, Julie, <laughs> die. What did it mean for Jesus to take up his cross? It meant rejection and opposition. It meant shame. It meant suffering and untimely death. And it means the same for us. Do you know when we resolve to follow Jesus, we must be willing to face rejection from our friends and our family. We might even face hostility towards our faith. Do you know what? We will live in opposition to most of what the world will teach us. People might even try to shame us for what, be what we believe, and they may mock us. What I love to think about is that when Jesus took up his cross, he experienced every bit of that first before we did. 
you're not alone. He's been through every bit of it. He's felt every bit of it. God didn't lift him out of it. You're not alone in what you go through. He's been there before you. And do you know what? No other religion can say of their leader, he knows what I'm going through. He knows how I'm feeling. He knows, he understands. No one except a person who follows Jesus can speak of the incredible love poured out on them from the one that they follow. Jesus would send a billion love hearts to you on Instagram to show you just how much he loves and cares for you. He would endure anything for you, and he did. He endured the shame of the cross. But, everyone say but. The cross is not the end of the story. The opposition that Jesus faced ended in victory. The shame he endured ended in honor. The suffering ended in peace and the death ended in life. These things don't have the last say. Amen? They are not a full stop. They are just a comma. Jesus turned the cross into a symbol of life. So when Jesus says, pick up your cross, what he's really saying is, pick up life. Pick up your true life. Pick up life as it's supposed to be. The end of the story is victory and eternity. And you know, Peter didn't see the end of the story, even when Jesus told him right there and then. Look at verse 20, 21. It says, on the third day, he would be raised to life. Peter was so focused on all the difficult stuff that he heard Jesus say that he totally missed that in the same breath, Jesus said, and I will be raised to life. Peter forgot the, that in the end, everything would work out in the best possible way. And so in that moment, he had no hope for the future. All he saw was the present, the difficult circumstances. But we need to see the significance of the end of the story. Jesus may have promised that this life wouldn't be easy, but he makes even bigger promises about the next life. Let's never forget that although the call to deny ourselves and take up our cross is tough, the reward is matchless. We need to look past the cross and see the glory of what's to come, the life. Jesus promises that all the suffering we endure on this earth is nothing compared to the joy of spending eternity with him. Do we believe that? Will we be one of the few in our own generation who will take Jesus seriously at his word? All of my heart for all of his, holding nothing back, no half measures. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life in this world will eventually lose it through death. But whoever loses his life in this world for my sake will find it, that is, 
life with me for all eternity. This seemingly inside-out, back-to-front world is God's kingdom. And because it's God's kingdom, it's good and right and lovely and perfect. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help us to see past the cross through our suffering, through any shame, rejection, opposition that we might face and see the matchless joy ahead. Holy Spirit, come. Come.